Howdy and welcome back. No, welcome. Uh, howdy and welcome to another BP Movie Journal. The show we do since the last time we did one. Uh, the show we do where we talk about the movies we did. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> howdy and welcome to another BP Movie Journal. The show where we talk about the movies we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Does that sound right? That's right. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Okay. Uh, I feel like the real David would know this. Pull that mask off. <laughs> uh, yeah, everything's topsy-turvy. Um, we're going to jump in and just talk about the movies we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Which uh, It's been two weeks, but I've only seen seven movies, averaging one every two days. I've seen a mere four. Um but don't worry, I've been catching up on uh, old uh, on uh, more recent episodes of American Dad, so I'm good. Don't worry, <laughs> we're good on that. Yeah, it process. does sometimes surprise me that like because I am 100 percent sympathetic to the fact that you have right. less time now. Yeah, as a as a, a father of, of still very small uh, yeah children, but sometimes I think about and yet <laughs> in the year 21, 2021 so far. You have devoted no less than six and a half hours of your life to the works of Zack Snyder, a director you do not like. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, hang on. Is that true? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you watched Justice League and Army of the Dead. Yeah. um, You know what? Because I knew you weren't going to, and I figured like one of us should. (laughs) Okay, thank you for picking up the slack. and And I also, honestly, for the same reason that I watched something like American Dead, it's easier for me to watch TV right now. And... I'm more comfortable watching 30 minutes of a Zack Snyder movie and then walking away to do something else and then coming back. Right. Whereas if it's a movie I actually want to see, I want to actually watch it. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to jump in. Uh, I, I said in a recent movie journal, I guess last month, I don't know if it was last one or two ago, uh, that I watched, um, the first Alejandro Hodorowsky movie, Fando and Lease. I finally followed up with his second one, El Topo, mm-hmm. something that I've been literally since high school, I've been told I should see. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have to say, I don't think I would have liked it in high school. I would have found it too hippie ish. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really like El Topo. It's a, um, sort of, uh, psychedelic Western, like sort of parable mm-hmm. type of, uh, movie about a, uh, 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 a, a gunslinger, I guess, or whatever, who um, uh, gets into some misadventures, and then he like meets a woman who's like, "Hey, there's like four other killers or something that I need you to kill," and so he like at sort of at her bidding travels across the desert seeking out these four different. So it's very episodic, mm-hmm. and then it has a whole other like thing at the end that I won't even uh, get into. It's all very like. It, it's one of those movies that's, I, I don't know exactly what everything is about, what religions represented by which gunfighters or whatever it's clearly supposed to be about, but it's something that's clearly an allegory. Yeah. But, um, uh, so that probably would have bothered me when I was younger. I like that now. Uh, I like that, that straightforward weirdness, but also just, I feel like <clears throat> the, the leap in confidence between Fendo and Lee, which I liked and El Topo is pretty astounding that like Fendo and Lee feels like a guy kind of clearly very inspired by Fellini. Mm-hmm. Now that's, I still haven't seen the whole mountain, but I've seen Santa Sangre and I've seen El Topo. Like the Fellini influence is not going away, but kind of like how, 
P.T. Anderson went from being like, I'm going to, you know, I made my Scorsese movie, then I'm going to make my Altman movie, and yeah. then, like, he started making his own movies. Right. Um, and even then, uh, like, he did a with, cuff, yeah. with There Will Be Blood, a lot of people said there's a lot of John Huston in there. And, um, yeah, and, and Kubrick. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, like, he, he feels more confident, and so, like, El, to- El Topo feels like the first real Hodorowsky movie where he's like, okay, yes, I'm going to be like Fellini, but I'm going to be Fellini on like a really bad acid trip. Like, like there's right at the very beginning of the movie, he, um, the, the, the gunslinger is, you know, he stumbles into this town where all the townspeople have just been slaughtered, massacred. And there's not only their dead bodies everywhere. There's like literally a river of like a stream of blood running down the main street of the town. And it's like, awful and horrific but also like wow that blood is really like bright and cool like it's very cool looking you know and (laughs) there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is like very violent but like really cool and psychedelic at the same time um so i look forward to finally watching the holy mountain which i think will will because i've seen santa sangre and i've seen his bullshit documentary he made a a year or two ago um which i've already forgotten the name of but um i'm looking forward to to complete yeah. finally catching up on on all of Hodorowsky, which I has spent so long avoiding because it seemed like it wouldn't be for me, which it, again it wouldn't have been right younger in my younger days. He's still he's still a complete blind spot for me. I've not seen a single thing. Uh, everything I had heard, having heard about him when I was younger, I think I had gotten to this point. It's like, all right, I don't think I'm going to like this. The only reason I would see it is because people say I should see it. And I would say I would see it just to shut them up, but I don't think I'm going to like it. Yeah. I think I would probably like it now, or at the very least appreciate it. Uh, and so, yeah, it's definitely that's a blind spot I'm not happy about. Uh, well, like I said, um, I have that Arrow box set that has okay. it doesn't have some design already, but it's got the others. Okay. So, uh, uh, if you're interested. Um, and then next up, I watched a, a new restoration of a movie from 1989 that I didn't know anything about that I am in love with. Okay. It is called Chameleon Street. It is directed by, written and directed by and starring a man named Wendell B. Harris Jr. Uh, it was apparently a big hit at Sundance in 1989, which it was already called Sundance by then, right? Was it? Because um, it started, it was the American Film Festival. Right. And it was also like in the summer. I, I think of Sundance as like a 90s film festival, but that doesn't mean that, that that's... No, it started, I, just, I think it started in the early '80s as the American Film Festival, but right? Like, by, like what year? Sex Lies and Videotape is that's '89, '89, and that was a yeah. Sundance uh, yeah, hit. Right. So by the late '80s, it's it's Sundance. Yeah, apparently at the beginning it was like American Film Festival, and it was in the summer. It was in Park City, but it was in the yeah. summer. And uh, like um, the rumor I heard is that like it was um, Sidney Pollock who told Robert Redford like put it in the winter all the like LA executives and stuff and agents and stuff will come so they can ski. Hmm. And, and, like that's, that's a, how Sundance blew up. Um, I don't know if that's true. That's just the story I heard. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is that chameleon street, uh, is, I don't almost don't know how to describe it because the, the movie just, the, the, it's not just a clever title. The movie keeps changing because this main character who is, I think he's charming and we're kind of on his side, but he's also like objectively probably like a sociopath Mm -hmm. because he just like wants to get ahead in life. And so he keeps becoming whatever 
he feels he needs to be next, okay. you know? So he like, and he'll do, he has no scruples. He'll like, There's like a Ripley quality uh, to him. Yeah. Like Ripley, but, but except very, I think that's a, yeah, he's very much like Ripley, except I want to make clear chameleon street is a comedy. Oh, I meant Ripley from alien. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's very much like the talented Mr. Ripley, but, uh, Community Street is a, is a comedy, and it's a it's a it's a very funny one. It's Wendell B. Harris Jr. is like so dry and has a singular point of view. Um, there, like there's a there's a scene. He's um, at dinner with his uh, I can't remember wife or girlfriend or whatever, and a, a drunken man, a drunken white man, comes up and starts hitting on his girlfriend and starts then starts saying racist mm-hmm. things, and he like stands up and then goes on this tirade about the guy's grammar of all things, <laughs> and like it's it's funny, but it's also like you see him doing the comedian thing of being like. I can't take this guy into fight. This guy's bigger than me. I can't take him. Right. How am I going to, how am I going to get the upper hand here? What can I use to get the upper hand? Hmm. And he's using his, his, his words and his, and his wit. Um, it's, I, I loved the movie so much. Sounds great. Yeah. Chameleon street. All right. Well, I will say, uh, the movies that I did watch a good number of them pretty long. Okay. Leading off with All right. The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, which is Francis Ford Coppola's recut of Godfather 3. Um, I didn't realize that was out, that existed. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I remember hearing like, something about that. As of like that. two years ago, uh, I believe, maybe wow. last year. Um, but yeah, I watched, I don't remember what service I watched it on, but uh, but I was curious about it. Um and the tough here's the here's the rough thing. I haven't seen Godfather three in well over twenty years. Well over, I if think not more. I when you and I lived together in our first apartment in Chicago, I think okay. it was the last time I watched it. So it would have been like okay. exactly twenty years ago. I think I saw it in. I mean, I might have been in high school at that point. So it has been quite a while. Um, to such an extent that, like, I, I mean, I had a pretty good memory for it because it is a film that kind of has some. Uh, iconic imagery uh, and some good performances and, you know, and a notably not great performance. Um, And so, but I, but at the same time, like from a structure standpoint, like I wouldn't have been able to tell you what was cut out, Mm -hmm. uh, what was included. Um, I had to look it up after and I, I, part of me wishes I hadn't. Um, But uh, so, yeah, I can really only talk about it as though it's the just the official movie. Um, I'm not going to say like, oh, well, there's this and this and this um, because I can't even remember it after I read the article. Um, And it's I mean, I'll say everything that people say about Godfather three, which is that like it, it doesn't feel like it belongs. It's made, you know, Godfather two was made two years after this was made. Uh, 17, 16 17. years after that, you know, so of course it's going to feel so different. Uh, but it, there was a little intro by Copeland, which he said, he goes, I never, he goes, I didn't, I never wanted it to be called Godfather three. He's like, I wanted it to be called the Godfather coda. He goes, I wanted it to be an epilogue. I did not want it to be seen as a continuation of the story. It is a, it is an epilogue. That's the way he looked at it. And so, um, and so even just him, Contextualizing it, and then the title contextualizing, I think, helps quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more just like if someone said, "Hey, 
if someone ever watched the first Godfather movies, they're like, what happened? What would ever happen if Michael Corleone went legit? What would that be like? And this is the answer to that, which is like, yeah. Because before that, all you had was, uh, well, I guess not. I had the time. I was trying to think of Oscar, the Sylvester Stallone movie, but <laughs> about a gangster trying to go legit. Right. Yes. But that uh, which might have been after this. Out after, yeah. Um, maybe that was the inspiration. But what if someone saw, maybe someone saw the Godfather Part Three and said, "What if this, but trying to be funny? What if this, but exactly? Farce? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if, what if the laughs were intentional? Um, <laughs> but the, uh, but so what I'll say is like, it's a, it's a flawed movie, partially because I think there's, it's a little bit more histrionic than the first Godfather movies. I think of those movies is pretty grounded, um, whereas this one feels more. You know what? I won't say histrionic. I'll say operatic." which makes sense because the opera plays actually a big role in the film. Um, Everybody seems to be operating at a slightly higher operating. Yeah. I I had the same thought. (laughs) I know what I'm saying. If, if only after I say it, but, um, but everyone's, everyone's a little bit heightened. Uh, but within that, I mean, you've got Eli Wallach in there. You've got Andy Garcia. You've got Joe Mantegna. Like, there's a, it's a really solid cast. And I think they're all doing really good work. And the story itself, something that I had remembered to a certain extent, but not nearly as much, is how huge of a role the Catholic Church plays. And that this is a film that is damning mm. of the Catholic Church. The idea, like the church essentially as like a corporate entity more so than anything else. Uh, and that like, they're totally willing to get into bed with a guy that they know has a, you know, black as night soul, uh, because they stand to gain financially from it. And I find it, I find that part of it really interesting. Um, because, and, and it's almost like when you think of the end of the first Godfather with where Michael's son is being baptized and during that time, you know, all his enemies are getting slaughtered. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's, it's that juxtaposition. Like how can this person engage in this ceremony and how can the person baptizing his son, how can he know who he is and say, this is fine. And it's the whole movie saying like, yeah, let's explore that. And so and sure enough, the weak link continues to be Sofia Coppola, who is one of my favorite directors, but not a great actress, especially because she is surrounded by better actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really, it's, it's a fascinating movie. I wouldn't say it's an experiment. It is just an interesting coda and it's war and it's, vi- it's visually quite gorgeous at times. Good music. It is a, it's a solid movie. It's not in the same league at all yeah. with the first two, but it deserves to be watched. I'm glad I watched it. Um, whether it be whether it be this or or if I were to rewatch it, you know, as, as it existed in the theaters, um, I'm glad that I did that. And uh, and I would recommend if 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 you you, know, you haven't seen it in a while, I'm sure no, the yeah. listeners haven't seen it in a while. Check it out. It's 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 worth watching for sure. Um, okay. <coughs> A movie I unfortunately can't say is necessarily worth watching, but I should have known because I don't like movies like this. I watched uh, Liz Garbus's Becoming Cousteau, the documentary about Jacques Cousteau okay. that's on uh, Nat Geo or, or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I I learned a lot about Jacques Cousteau, but as you, as you, as you and I have said, like what documentaries, not there are still great documentaries being made, but like the sort of mainstreaming of documentaries has made them all kind of samey and has been 
I think, antithetical to what I want out of documentaries. I feel like a broken record, but I'm going to keep saying this as long as I keep making movies like this. I want to feel that I am discovering things along with the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I don't like these documentaries where it feels like just a presentation, just like yeah, it feels ev- tremendously safe. Everything was lined up before completely. And they were like, okay, now we'll make the documentary. It's not like, you know, and so, I, I feel like sometimes you get, and I guess part of the reason I keep watching it every once in a while is sometimes you get surprised. There was that, um, um, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the David Crosby one, um, probably like oh, right. three years ago, uh, four years ago, that was like, felt like, okay, this is going to be a bio doc about David Crosby, but like, he's such a fascinating, like curmudgeonly, like, uh, angry guy that like, it can't help but be fascinating just on its own. You're, yeah. you're seeing the, the filmmakers deal with that. Obviously there's none of that with Jacques Cousteau. Everything's in, in the past. The, 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 the story uh, that this movie being made the the story being told the way it is is obviously has a lot to do with the current state of the world and climate change and stuff because a lot of the focus on the documentary is um tracking jacques cousteau's uh the the sort of awakening activist in him because he very much wasn't at the beginning he was very much this idea of like man conquering the sea Mm -hmm. and then by like the the 90s he became one of the leading like spokesperson for we now call think of like as the green movement or whatever and so that's that's the movie's main thrust is sort of tracking that that development over his uh over his life but then of course you also get the like you know sometimes you and i have you've like especially complained about biopics that are like not not warts and all just warts yeah but sometimes you get the other thing where it's like the warts are like perfunctory or like you could have predicted like oh really Jacques Cousteau wasn't a very like present father like <laughs> every other like person you're making a documentary about that's yeah. like the uh, I could have guessed that but uh, I don't know, have much more to say about it. in retrospect it makes me feel like I've maybe been a little bit too hard on like Morgan Neville um, who makes these kind of documentaries but he does for the most part, he's still able to maintain a sense of immediacy, even with like his, his Mr. Rogers documentary, which I had certain issues with because it didn't, it felt like it was just so, you know, facile or whatever. But at the same time, any, like he understands what could be seen as a revelation and he treats it that way as opposed to just like, Hey, we all know, uh, we all know where we're headed. We all know where we've been. So let's just do this. Well, I think um, he, yeah, I've, I've said before, I think Morgan Neville is of these type of documentaries that I generally don't like. He is at least operating sort of at the top of that. And I think part of it is that he has a good eye for footage for archival footage. It's yes. not like, you know, a lot of times these kind of document documentaries get discussed, d- dismissed as like talking head documentaries. Cause mm-hmm. and like Morgan Neville's documentaries definitely have that, but I think he puts a lot of care into, finding the footage i think like best of enemies is a lot of fun to watch yeah partially because like there's a lot of good footage yeah <laughs> um and it but it's there's a lot of that a lot more of that in my memory at least than just yeah. people saying here's my memory of yeah. buckley or whatever um and god help me i'm so sorry for saying what i'm about to say okay as somebody who's made a couple of documentaries that is all about footage um <laughs> Man, when you find, when you, you know, you go looking for this stuff and sometimes you'll find a treasure trove. Like when I, like with real redemption, when I had like the big section about uh, last temptation of Christ, 
and I was like, okay, I, I'm going to need, you know, I, I need like reactions to this film from the era. And so I was like, all right, here's a, an Oprah episode. This is going to be helpful. And then there was like on YouTube, there was like a whole montage of like talking to people waiting in line or people processing like, oh. <gasps> fucking gold mine. <laughs> like I was so excited. And so, uh, yeah, I'm sure Morgan Neville, like when he was ma- it, any of his movies, I'm sure like he'll be, is like, okay, yeah, this is all kind of what I expected. And invariably you find something's like, well, this just made my day. If not, if not the whole experience that this thing exists. Uh, all right, moving on to my next movie, which I'm wondering, cause it's a new movie and it's long. You said you watched long movies. This might be an overlap. I watched Denis Villeneuve's Dune. No, uh, okay. it is. It is not. Um, I want to see it. I saw in, on Letterboxd. You don't. You didn't love it. Um, it's, but it's here's the thing. This is very much not for me. Is the thing. Oh, okay. Like in terms of I, I you know, it's very nerdy. I, I'm like, I like that to some extent, but there's a there's a part I guess where I'm like. I don't hate Dune. I just like, there's not a lot of way in, in for me. It's very like, as you often get with any, with any villain, any villain, any villain, and very striking and like towering and stuff, but also it's two and a half hours long. So some of that stuff kind of wears off as it goes on. Yeah. I didn't, I don't really have, I have very few problems with Denis Villeneuve's choices. It really is just like, uh, this is not my type of nerdiness. It's not my type of, sci-fi it also felt like um because i haven't read the books right and to compare it to a very different nerd property game of thrones where i have read the the song of ice and fire because i've read the song of ice and fire the like politics of game of thrones are very fascinating to me because the book books really get into them Whereas like I'm watching Dune and I'm like, okay, I like that there's political intrigue here, but it's, this is like broad strokes. Yeah. But I, a part of me knows like, I'll bet if I watched, if I read the move or read the book, I'd like get yeah. the, the nuance of, of the politics So that. Maybe that was not my, my way in. It just, I it, no the, the, what I will say about Dune, I know. Yeah. I gave it like a lower star rating on letterboxd. What I will say about Dune is that I spent less of the movie bored than I thought I would because yeah. Um, the music's so good. The the the, the amazing production design and, and yeah. the CGI. And as Natalie pointed out, the costumes are amazing. Um, that that's a big uh, a, a big help uh, for me. But um, I would say the biggest turnoff, and this is true of pretty much every Denis Villeneuve movie, he doesn't tend to include a lot of humor in his movies. That's true. And sometimes that it doesn't bother me with like, or I like arrival and I like later. And I love later in 2049. Yeah. It's, it doesn't bother me in prisoners. It bothered me here. It bothers me here. It bothers me. I think, especially because like, again, I think I have this, I don't have the right kind of nerdy mind where like the, you know, it, Bene Gesserit and Kwisatz Haderach and like all these like silly words and it's like all right we're just going to be as straightforward about this as possible and I absolutely get that there are the type of people who that's that's what they want you know um, it reminded me in a very it's a very different movie in some ways but in some ways it's a very similar movie it reminded me of Rogue One mm. which is a movie where I've always because I and I this is going to sound like a, a slam but I actually like Rogue One um, but uh, the thing I've said about Rogue One, it, it almost felt like throwing a bone to the like 
overgrown adult Star Wars fans who are like, okay, here's your po-faced war movie. You yeah. know, <laughs> here's here's the movie we're going to take this all this stuff like it's going to be very maudlin and be very serious yeah. about the cost of war and stuff, and then we'll get back to like the kids movie with the fun puppets and shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like and like that kind of makes me laugh about Rogue One, but I also again I I like Gareth Evans. Or Edwards, I can't. Remember. I think it's Evans. I uh, think Edwards is is Godzilla. Okay, um, I like him. I like his choices. I definitely like. I don't think Rogue One, after Last Jedi, is the best looking of the Disney Star Wars movies. I agree. Doesn't hold a candle to Dune. Dune is really cool looking. Yeah. Um, and the performances are are, are, are good. There's, uh, uh, yeah. There's specific moments I could. I could uh, I could call out, but um, uh, there's there's one there's one shot in particular actually where um, Tim uh, Timothée Chalamet I don't know if that's how you say his name Timothée oh, really? Chalamet but, oh. but he's like French ish oh. so I don't know if it's Timothée I imagine he's probably or, made his peace with yeah. Timothy um, his character is like doing his like homeschooling and it's like these projections that come out of the floor that are illustrating things and it gets like frozen in this like forest scene and then like something happens and he kind of has to hide so he's really just hiding behind this projection but it it looks like he's hiding in the woods except all the trees are made of light Hmm. it's very cool looking Uh, and so there's enough moments like that in the movie that definitely held my interest maybe I was too mean on my letterboxed star rating but um, it's still like it's not for me I will say the part two got greenlit and I'm like yeah I want to see what happens next I care enough to see what happens next and you know what? I I know exactly what you mean, where it's just like, you and I are, are movie nerds. And within certain movies, we are nerds about mytholo- about certain mythologies, like Harry Potter. Um, and yet there is, and I, I'm, I'm going to try and say this without any kind of judgment, um, because in this instance, it takes a lot for me to like judge this kind of nerd. It's happened. But... <laughs> there is a different kind of nerd that gets so in the weeds about like the politics of this mythology. It's something I found with like certain Lord of the Rings fans. And it's like, Hey, and even I say this as someone like, I'm a big fan of the character of the Riddler. I've not read every appearance of the Riddler in the comic books Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but I do have strong opinions about who the Riddler is and what he should be like. So it's like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I remember Asterius Kokonos, uh, uh-huh. our friend, uh, had a wonderful bit talking about uh, about ner- nerdiness, and he was talking about like uh, he he graphed uh, the 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 correct uh, the correct amount of nerdiness about the Matrix. He goes, he goes right here. This is what experts will call the sweet spot, where you can identify the actors in the Matrix, but not the names of their characters. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like there are. Uh, there are some there are some properties that like it's so and you know god bless anybody who like just finds passion is passionate about certain things but dune the world of dune has i've known people that are like huge fans about it and they're very particular about things and whether it be a movie or a tv miniseries or whatever it is like which everyone it, forgets existed the miniseries i, 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 like I feel like years ago 20 it was 2000 so oh, over okay. 20 years ago um i, I know because it looked up but i feel like every thing i re- ever review i read of any of those news 
Dune is like, of course there was the David Lynch movie and then they failed before that there was the failed Alejandro Jodorowsky yeah. uh, version. And no one like talks about like, Oh yeah. And they made, uh, do you think it's cause it's TV. They like look down on it or something. Like I guess. That, or, yeah. Or just act like it doesn't count. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are big Dune fans and to my knowledge, this is pleasing them, which does make me wonder if I'm someone who just appreciates sci-fi yeah. on a larger level, will this be something that is not necessarily boring, but will it just, will I feel like I'm on the outside looking in? Um, possibly if you approach it that way, I, I kind of did, but also I want to remind like, it's also like, look, if we're going to make movies that are this expensive, mm-hmm. I at least want people like to need <laughs> spending the money. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So there, there is like, there is an aspect of that of like, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's never ugly. You know, it's, uh, sometimes it's, I kind of laugh at how self serious it all, it all is, yeah. but, uh, it's pretty cool looking the yeah. entire time. Uh, well, good, we'll, yeah, good, good cast. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> like every, every new actor you mention is like, I can't believe that they got this cast, but this is an event. It is seen as an event. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think you're up. Uh, next up is a rewatch for me, a movie that I actually had not seen in quite a while. Uh, but Jen and I were in the mood for something a little Halloweenish. It's like the only horror thing that we've watched and it's not even horror. And it's Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. Oh yeah. Which I realized I haven't seen this in, I'd seen it a lot, which I think tricked me into thinking I'd seen it more recently. But I, as I was watching it, I like, watched it's it probably last been October. Okay. Yeah. As I was watching it, it was, I realized like it's probably been about 20 years. Um, just, uh, uh, trivia, trivia about me. When I got my current TV, which is UHD and HDR, mm-hmm. um, Beetlejuice is available to stream in HDR from Google play. So it's the first movie I watched in high dynamic range color, uh, on my HDR TV. It looked, I looked bet good. it looked good. Yeah, man. Boy, do I miss that Tim Burton? <laughs> I mean, that's the movie. First off, it's a nice, it's a nice cool 90 minutes. Get in, get out. It's, it's so manic and so, just doing just throwing everything at the wall there's a, from a story standpoint there's a lot of shit that doesn't make sense and who cares um from a makeup from an art direction standpoint like you know we all know what to expect from Tim Burton and you and I think a part of that is he's doing and this happens with with most directors who have a very specific style is it's very possible for them to do something their way because that's what people expect them to do. But that, but there was a time when Tim Burton, there was nothing specifically expected of him. He had made Pee Wee's big adventure mm. and then he makes this. He hadn't made Batman or Edward Scissorhands or anything like this. The stuff that like really solidified him. This was still very novel and it's still very new for him and you 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 get a sense like all throughout you get a sense of him as a director being like I cannot believe I'm being allowed to do this <laughs> and it has just this sense of vitality mm-hmm. and just over the top ridiculousness uh in everything whether it be you know and I love this idea that like the the other world you know the 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 next oh, world speaking of, of uh, sandworms yeah, it's, I did have that thought. Yeah, um, that like Catherine O'Hara's like uh, and and uh, Glenn Shaddix's uh, like po- 
like postmodern uh, sensibilities really doesn't look that different than yeah. the super the yeah. supernatural. Um, and just its use of color and all of it, it just feels so fresh. Even though, like, even though we all have come to know what to expect, it's like the tone is so different, the pacing is so different, and it's imperfect, and it's not all planned out. And I don't remember the last time I felt that about a Tim Burton film. Honestly, it was probably Sleepy Hollow. Um, as much as I do like uh, Sweeney Todd. And I do think that he's had his moments here and there. Um, I feel like the last time I really got a sense of joy from and excitement at doing what he wants to do, uh, it was probably Sleepy Hollow. And before that, probably like Mars Attacks. Like every once in a while with him, you get a sense where he's like, I cannot, again, I can't believe I'm being allowed to do this. I, people are paying me to do this. Um, and Beetlejuice, like it just had such an energy that I that I miss and it just speaks to this idea that like you can you can it's it's similar in in its own way it's similar to something like the Gus Van Sant psycho like you can do all the same things Mm -hmm. but if you don't have that sense of freshness and excitement it's the most visually interesting stuff can still feel tremendously boring and predictable there's nothing predictable about Beetlejuice um, especially the fact that Beetlejuice says like, says fuck, like it's, it's a PG movie. It's like one of the only, ins- oh. I looked it up. It's one of the only instances of a PG movie having the word fuck. Spaceballs has it. Spaceballs. Yeah. Uh, eight men out has it. Oh, I don't, I, I've never seen it. Um, but yeah. And I just, it was so refreshing slash sad <laughs> knowing where he would end yeah. up. Um, yeah, uh, when Natalie and I watched the last Halloween, it was like not too long after we'd finished watching Shit's Creek, mm. and it really was like a like. Sometimes do we take Catherine O'Hare for granted? Yes, she's we do. What an amazing talent! Because as we were wa- as I was watching her, because I think I, I knew who she I, I had an idea of who she was at the time, and I just saw her character as like annoying because I'm a kid and she would be annoying and she's supposed to be annoying go back now and you're like this is genius yeah <laughs> and and jen was laughing out loud and she's like she goes Catherine O'Hara is hilarious in this and i was like you haven't even seen Shit's creek yet yeah and i was like you should watch it it's this character yeah. but more theatrical yeah i've i've talked on the podcast about how often um natalie and i like speak in the like quotes to each other from things yeah but like uh because of Shit's creek we can't say breakfast anymore it's breakfast because that's like how that's how she says it yeah yeah alexis come have breakfast with me (laughs) Um, all right Uh, there are many actors or actresses that can make that work and make it seem somehow organic okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Um, all right, moving on to a movie that I loved. It's directed by Edward Lockman. You might okay. know the name as a cinematographer. He's like uh, Todd Todd Haynes' uh, oh, okay. like go to guy, um, among others. Uh, but I don't know how to describe this film. I'm going to go with concert film. Okay. But it's that's not entirely accurate. It's called Songs for Drella. So Songs for Drella is a 1990 album that Lou Reed and John Cale, both formerly of the Velvet Underground, made about their former, their late friend and mentor, Andy Warhol. So it's an entire album dedicated to Andy Warhol, these two guys who were like, you know, in his circle when they were younger and he was an older guy, like their memories of, uh, of him. Um, but the movie is them playing the songs on a stage so it's live, but there's no audience. So I guess it, but it, so I guess it's kind of like a visual album, but I guess it, it's, it's, it's just these two guys. And I guess a camera crew, um, playing this album front to back. Uh, and it's amazing. It's beautiful. Um, especially, I guess the more, you know, about like, um, cause Lou Reed and John Cale had kind of like grown apart and like Andy Warhol's death is kind of what brought them back together. And so then like after not making music together for a long time, they, 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 they made this album. And so there's something about like watching them play. Cause they play it's Lou Reed on guitar and John Cale usually on, <coughs> on piano. Sometimes he uh, plays like a violin in one song. I think he also plays a, a, a guitar in a different song, but it's, there's no other people. It's two guys making this album about their friend who died. Um, and it's just incredibly, and the songs are great and it's incredibly powerful stuff. And you see them like, cause they're on opposite ends of the stage, but you can, and I, I like Edward Lockman's choice to include these things in it. You see them like look up and make eye contact with each other for like cues. It's so it hmm. feels even though the songs are fully realized, it has this feel of almost like they're rehearsing them. Oh, interesting. You know, because they're like, they're, they're not putting on a show for a crowd. Right. They're, the people they're looking at are each other, which is on the certain, like on the, you know, front level, top level. That's, that's them getting through the song together, but it's also them looking at each other, checking in with each other about them, like mourning their friend hmm. and like it, the fact that their, their friendship was rekindled by their friend dying. It's a hmm. uh, really powerful stuff. Wow. And it's only an hour long. Um, and it's uh, recently been restored. So, all right. Uh, now we're going back and forth, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I went to see, um, Chloe Zhao's Eternals, which comes out next week, and it's the latest Marvel movie, and it's fine. Occasionally, it's great, and visually, it's it is often quite beautiful. Good, a really great cast, um, and a really interesting idea. It's you know we're we're getting back into like the world of cosmic Marvel which can go one of two ways. It can either be just crazy like Thor Ragnarok or guardians of the galaxy, or it can be frankly a little humorous, uh, sorry, humorless, uh, like the first two Thor movies, I'd say. Um, and it is a combination of the two landing more towards humorless. And because we're dealing with like these, you know, essentially these, God type creatures, they do what they can in the screenplay to make 
things more casual and relatable. Not that that's necessarily something I require, but in order to undercut the 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 portents of mm-hmm. of the way these characters talk and what they're talking about, um, they try to incorporate sort of this casual quality. Um, not always successfully. In fact, I'd say rarely successfully. Um, and what's interesting is that the the story and the mythology of it is fascinating. I love it. It's such a neat idea. The downside is that the only way to talk about this mythology is to talk about it. Okay. It feels like... Okay, you know the... Uh, trying to think of the best way to say this you know like sort of the prologue for lord of the rings where uh kate blanchett is just narrating all this stuff yeah it's a whole movie of that in many ways Uh. um it's not literally that it just feels like that the the amount of time when we will when we just get this info dump and it it just seems to go on and even though what they're saying is like oh this is very interesting but it's like there's got to be a better way to do this than how you're doing it. And Chloe Zhao does, does what she can to make it visually interesting. And it often is, but it just, the film winds up feeling kind of cold. And I also, and I, and a lot of the characters, the actors are doing what they can, but a lot of the characters I find, I don't find that dynamic. Um, it's only with certain bits of, of specificity and probably casting that, that the film occasionally has like this little breath of life, like Kumail Nanjiani's character who, you know, these the reason I've been, the number one reason I've been interested in this movie is I love the idea of Kumail Nanjiani. And oh, yeah. I also, I love that because of the press tour, I love that he, of all people, if you like, cause you and I would see him do stand up yeah. over 10 years ago. Yeah. The fact that he is a, like, totally jacked now yeah. but also is like a fashion plate <laughs> like he yeah. looks so good on the red carpet yeah. because i follow emily gordon his wife on instagram mm-hmm. um weirdly because like i guess when instagram was new because we i used to email with her when we did live shows at meltdown comics because she booked those right so oh yeah so i guess when instagram was new i like followed her i was like oh this person i know and now i still like yeah a decade later i still follow her so i see all these pictures of camille like and like looking looking tight on the uh, on the red carpet yeah so like to me eternals i'm sorry if it's not great i'm glad it exists if only for what it's done for camille <laughs> well and also i mean and and brian tyree henry's in it and he's he's delightful um I, I've always, not always, he's fairly young, but I enjoy Barry Keegan. That's how I say, uh, in everything he's in and he, he does some good stuff in a while. It's like Dunkirk. Uh, I feel like he was in something somewhat recently between Dunkirk and, and Eternals, but, uh, oh, he was in, um, he was in the green, the green night. I didn't see that. Um, and he's very good in it too. Uh, but yeah. And so Kumail Nanjiani, like what they, the stuff they give his character because these characters have been on earth for thousands of years. So it's like, what does that do to a person? Um, and how do they cope with it? And so he essentially, his character became a Bollywood star. And what's more is they're like, well, how do you explain that you don't age? And he goes, oh, well, and he goes through like all these different posters throughout the ages. He goes, well, this is my great grandfather. This is uh, this is my grandfather. He goes, I am a one man Bollywood legacy. Uh, And that as he gets pulled into this adventure, he brings his his uh, valet along. And this guy 
I don't remember the valet. Name. Valet. I think they say valet. A valet parks your car. Well, valet. A, a valet is like I, a I body some, man. I think somebody. That's right. Somebody else says like, wait, valet. I think there's there's a confusion. But yeah, so his valet is there, and I don't remember the name of the actor. He's an Indian actor. This guy might be the MVP. He is hilarious, and yet he's the only human amongst them. And he's not really taking a part, uh, taking part in this thing, but he's there to uh, because Kumail has told him to film all of this so he can make a documentary. But that means he's also privy to everything they're talking about, and he's still going to have his own reactions to it. Okay. It's great. Like everything with those two characters is really great. Uh, not merely because it's funny, but there's also really nice moments. It is not. I, I saw uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, and I, I'm probably gonna. That's him. Uh, I'm probably his, going uh, to. His name is Harish Patel. Yeah, I, I looked him up. I didn't. I don't remember what else he's he's been. Oh, he in. was in the. I know no one else but me watched this, but the Four Weddings and a Funeral inspired miniseries on oh. Hulu. He was in that. Uh, yeah, I remember him now. So, I mean, it's tough. Like, I'm probably gonna give the movie like a rotten on on Rotten Tomatoes. Which I, I, I hate even thinking in those terms, but you have to. I don't think the... Because I can't really recommend the movie, but there is recommendable stuff within the film. But just as a whole, yeah. I don't think it's that strong. As you mentioned Rotten Tomatoes. I, I had read today, I guess. It's been a long day. Um, yeah. AV Club just mentioned like it's going to... It's going to be the lowest. And a part of me was like... It made me intrigued to see the movie. Like just the idea that... Like Kevin Feige seems to have such a tight grip on the MCU, just the idea that like one got away from him. Like, I was curious, but I would say your description of it has made me a little less curious. There's, there is a lot. There's a lot to recommend about it individually. Like, if you could just, if you could take all these parts, take it all apart, and just watch these scenes or those scenes, then like you could really enjoy it. But just as a whole, and it's long. It's two and a half hours. And it's just not... I just don't think it's worth it. They're all long now. What's They're, the shortest Marvel movie? I have to assume probably one of the early ones like before Incredible they realized... Hulk or, probably Incredible Hulk or the first yeah. Iron Man. Like, before they realized they were making epics every time. Right. Um, I could see Ant-Man not being very long. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably like hour and 45 or I so. could see that. Um, all right. Next up for me, I watched the movie that... You know, I... I used to, uh, I, I mourn younger movie watching me who went into every movie going, I'll bet this is going to be great. I'm going <laughs> to love it. Yeah. Now I, I, I'm a little more jaded, but I do have a tendency to be, it doesn't make any sense. I know, but I will be, my excitement for a movie is weirdly connected to how much I liked whatever movie I watched previously. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be like, hmm. but just like. I had watched songs for Drella yeah. and I was like, ah, this is so great yeah. tonight. I've got a screening of Scott Cooper's antlers. Now I don't like Scott Cooper's movies right. and I wasn't looking forward to antlers, but you know what? I'm going to give this thing a chance. Songs for Drella was good. This movie has nothing whatsoever to do with that, but I'm just in a good mood about movies, I guess. Uh, I really like this, uh, <laughs> this, this memento, this inverse yeah. memento situation where yeah. you only remember the last five minutes. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, Antlers was kind of everything I feared, especially because I say I don't like Scott Cooper. I liked Crazy Heart. Mm-hmm. That was a while ago now. Yeah, but I really didn't like Hostiles in this 
And he made Black Mass as well, right? Oh, God. Which yeah, I did not care I also for. did not like. But, uh, yeah, this remind, reminded me more of Hostiles, <coughs> even though obviously it's, that's a Western and this is a modern day, I guess, monster movie. But um, mm-hmm. uh, it's that sort of like, it really wants, the film and Scott Cooper really want you to believe that it's being very thoughtful and pensive about things. But it's really just like, it's just like brooding for show. Yeah. And so to make this, it's a monster movie. Luckily it's like only it's 90 something minutes, you know, but like there's God forbid this monster movie be fun. Like there's no sense of fun to to it. Let me ask you this to tie this into our most recent pure episode. Do you think this is a situation where Scott Cooper himself said this is elevated horror? (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Maybe he thinks of himself as a guy who's above horror Yeah, and he's like, I'm going to do my thing, which is going to be this like, uh, just soggy, like superficial meditation on like generational trauma through abuse. Hmm. But like the only, it, it doesn't meditate on it. It just like constantly reminds you that like, Oh, the monster is a metaphor for an abusive dad. And also Carrie Russell's dad was abusive. Like it's constantly like reminding you of these things. It's not really saying much about it. Um, it also weirdly, I don't know what this, this choice to like, because the, the monster in question is the Wendigo, which, um, Mm. is rooted in, uh, I don't know which tribe or tribes, but native American mythology. And it does this weird, like it also fought the Hulk, uh, the Wendigo. Oh, okay. I know it also like possessed Robert Carlyle in, uh, in, in ravenous. That's what I think of when I think of the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, what was I saying? I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. I do it to you all the time. Um, Oh yeah. It does this weird like head fake where it starts off with this. Like you think like, Oh, this is going to be one of those movies where native Americans are like a stand in for mother nature. And this is going to be like a parable about what mankind is doing to the earth. Like that starts with like, um, at the beginning, the first monster attack, there's like some like redneck dudes. I don't like that term redneck, but it's a shorthand. Um, some some like uh dudes like cooking meth in an abandoned like mine like coal mine or whatever and it's like it feels like okay i go where this is going i get where this is going and then like it very immediately like, after that opening after the like epilogue uh, prologue it's not about the environment anymore at all it was like super weird um i don't know how why, why it changed like psych gotcha this is actually about abuse uh but uh yeah to it's just constantly telling you how serious it is um to have people like jesse plemons and rory cochran both of whom were in hostels in a movie and still have it be so like drab is like you got to go out of your way to make those guys uninteresting yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. those are like fun actors to watch and carrie russell is someone that i um i really have liked in the past. I think when she is, when she is vibing with the material, I really like her, mm-hmm. but, but, but sometimes her energy is just like, cause I think she's a very still actor hmm. to begin with. I don't know. You didn't watch the Americans. No, but like no. she can be still and be very physical at the same time. What was the, uh, the star Wars movie that she's in where you never see her face? Uh, that's rise of Skywalker. That's, that's Rise of Skywalker? Okay. I think so, because she's like a former love interest of uh, Oscar right. Isaac, and I think that's the one. I, I love what she does in that, just like, even though you never see her face, like, she, when, when she's, when she's 
on the same page as the material. I really like her as an actress. I, I think she feels she's kind of lost uh, here with just like constantly having to just say with like Jesse Plemons, you are my young, much younger brother. I ran away from home and left you with our abusive dad. Like it just seems it's not that on the nose, but it just feels like the, the dialogue is constantly telling you what the backstory is and what everything means. What is this? Eternals? Um, also a couple of things. Yeah. A couple of other things. I know that if I weren't married to a social worker, I wouldn't think about these kind of things, but like, cause Jesse Plemons character is like the sheriff in this small town. Um, and at one point he makes reference to like, Oh yeah, we called child protective services. But from that on that, that point on, like I said, a lot of this is about like child abuse. It's as if social workers don't exist in this world. Mm. You know, there's like a part where Carrie Russell, who's like the school teacher is like, like this kid is like abandoned and she's like, I have to take him. He's my student. It's like, no, you don't. And also you can't do that. Like there's, there are systems in place, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but not in this movie. That bothers me. Yeah. As, as a, as a mandated reporter myself, right. uh, yeah. Like, I mean, maybe every state is different, uh, but at the same time, yeah. like there are a lot of structures and protocols in place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that and again, you know I, exactly what you're supposed to do. And we, we wouldn't know these things if we didn't, more the people we were, but it still it, yeah. it stands out to me. Uh, last, this is not about the movie at all. And this might only be of interest to people who are movie critics who live in Los Angeles. But this is the, there's plenty of weird things about Disney buying Fox. Mm-hmm. One of them is that like, there are press screenings and for your consideration screenings of Fox and Fox searchlight movies on the Disney lot. That's weird. Like a couple of yeah. years ago, it was weird that I saw Ad Astra on the Disney lot. Yeah. But here's what I didn't expect to be weird. Ad Astra, not in your normal Disney movie, <coughs> still PG 13 in a decade of going to press screenings on the Disney lot. I don't think I've ever seen an R rated movie on the Disney mm. lot before. And I didn't expect it to be weird, but like from the first scene where those meth heads are like, what the fuck was that? What, what fuck? Let's get the yeah. fuck out of here. And I'm like looking around like, this is the room where I saw toy story four and the African lions. And like, yeah. <laughs> this is, it feels so fucking weird. Yeah. There's a very specific feeling you get when you're walking back to your car on the Disney lot. And <laughs> yeah. that's not it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. What's what's next for you? Next for me is another rewatch. Most of the, uh, you know, obviously three out of four here are rewatches, but this is also a film I haven't seen since it had just, since it had come out in 2013. Uh, we watched it for my diversity in cinema class when discussing uh, class distinction as represented on film. Uh, and I chose, this is my choice. I, I'm an idiot. Uh, Cause my students, I tried to prepare them for it, but you can't really prepare somebody for E.L. Katz's cheap thrills, which um, I still haven't seen with our friend Pat Healy. Yeah, it's it's great, and and the students all seem to really uh, appreciate it, especially because a lot of the story elements of cheap thrills would be found in Squid Game, which they're all watching, uh-huh. um, and so uh, yeah, I I I mean, it is a it's a tough movie to watch on a lot of levels, darkly funny. Uh-huh. And I, I read reviews after rewatching it. And a lot of people said like, Oh, it's very misanthropic. It's like, I don't know if I would go that far. I think it's cynical, but that's not exactly the same. And, and, and one might say it's, it's 
world weary about just the nature of the interaction between classes and and specifically this idea it's like when somebody is desperate enough when when life has made somebody desperate enough the stuff that they would be willing to do the compromises they're willing to make i don't think that's misanthropic inherently especially if i feel like the film is mourning that fact which i think it is um and so for those that don't know, the story is uh, Pat Healy plays a, a, a husband and a father who loses his job, and as he's uh, he's at a bar and he's you know getting drunk, trying to think about like what he's going to do because he's you know his, his rent is due and all that. Um, and then an old friend of his, played wonderfully, I think, by Ethan Embry, um, shows up, and the two like start getting drunk, and then they get the attention of this very rich couple played by Dave Keckner and Sarah Paxton that Pat would be, would have been in, uh, in, uh, innkeepers mm-hmm. been with in innkeepers. Pardon yeah. me. Um, and, uh, and they invite them over. And so the, the four of them are hanging out and like, so you have these two guys who are kind of working class and in a rough financial situation. Then you have this couple that a game starts to evolve where essentially, uh, Dave Keckner's like, Hey, I'll, I'll give 50 bucks to whoever can uh, finish a shot first. And so it starts with that, but then it quickly escalates into the money gets a little bit higher and the, and the dares or challenges get a little bit tougher. It's like that prank monkey episode of the Simpsons, uh, where Mr. Burns just pays Homer to do all these very humiliating things. Okay. Um, but, uh, and then things escalate and after a certain point and it's very darkly funny and then you get to a certain moment and it stops being funny and it becomes very sad and very angering um and i think that i think if it strikes that balance great i think you've got this nice you know four person ensemble and i think all four of them are doing some of their best work Hmm. honestly i think dave keckner you know he's not doing anything that different than you've seen in something like Anchorman or The Office. He's just dialing it. He's just twisting the knobs in a slightly different direction, uh, so that you realize, like, oh man, this is this guy is. He's very charismatic and he's a lot of fun, but boy, he's a little tough um, to to watch. And so, uh, I think you would really like it. I think the yeah. listener would really like it. Uh, my students re- seem to respond to it. It led to a really good conversation. Um, but it's uh, but you know be warned it's it's tough. There's some st- some tough stuff in it. Um, <clears throat> well, speaking of I don't know a cynical, not misanthropic. Uh, I watched a uh, a French movie directed by Dominique Moll. It's called Only the Animals or Sous le Bet. Um, Dominique Moll twenty years ago made a movie called With a Friend Like Harry, or at least that was the oh. U.S. title. I don't know if you ever saw that. You would have loved that. No, I didn't, but I, I know the one you're talking about. Um, and I haven't seen anything he's done uh, since then. He's made a number of movies, but um, he was the reason I sought out Only the Animals, um, which is, uh, I guess, coming out in theaters uh, or in maybe streaming or whatever this weekend. Um, but uh, this is a movie that's it's hard to describe the plot because not because it's plotless, but because there's a ton of it, but that's not a complaint. It's, this is one of those movies. Um, it's not like, uh, you know, the term for movies like Babel or whatever that are like hyperlink movies. It's not right. that it's more like, I know you were a fan of the Graham Yost produced TV series, Boomtown. Yes. Where it's like, there's kind of, one major story going on here, but there's like four different chapters right. and they reach entirely from one character's 
point of view. So like you're seeing what happened to this one woman and like her husband and the guy she's having an affair with. And this like uh dead woman shows up and then like you, you see her like few days and then you see it the same period of time from like the guy she's having an affair with point of view. And you realize like the assumptions that you had made and that she had made, uh, were wrong and are more interesting. That keeps has a two hour long movie and it keeps happening. It jumps. It, it ends up getting outside that three day time frame and, uh, by quite a lot and ends up getting outside the town by quite a lot. It goes like all over the world, uh, or not all over the world, but to the other side of the world, at least. Um, and, uh, uh, it's obviously, um, it, it, it runs completely on coincidences, but not, that's not like a, again, that's not a complaint. That's just the nature of this type of story. Um, but it's just like a, uh, it's such a great just yarn, just watching these things and being like, Oh, that's what happened. Or like, Oh, she knows her. Like that's fun. But while it's fun and like twisty and stuff, the way that with a friend like Harry was like this Hitchcock homage, um, while it's all of these things, it's also a very cynical movie about the nature of, uh, the, the term only the animals comes from, there are two people in the movie, two completely separate people who don't know each other. Uh, the rare people in this movie who don't turn out to know each other, uh, who say something about like, they, they prefer the company of animals to people. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the movie's very cynical point of view of, the nature of human relationships, especially quote unquote loving human relationships is all being transactional and conditional. Mm -hmm. Um, that everyone in this movie is with someone or giving attention to someone in exchange for something else, you know, or is having to pay for that other person's attention. Um, it's a, it's a very sad movie in the macro, but it's super fun to watch moment to moment. I, mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, it's also got, it's got, um, a, a couple of, if you watch enough French movies, it's definitely got actors you would recognize. Um, I'll, I'll mention Denis, uh, Menochet, who you don't have to be a French film fan to recognize. He's the farmer from the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards. Oh yes. Yes. Um, he's, he's, uh, one of the main roles. You've also got, uh, Valeria Bruno Tedeschi, who was just in summer of 85 earlier this year. And then you've got Damien Bernard, who was also just in white, white as snow and has been in a couple of other things. And there's probably other people who are famous to French people, but, uh, those are three of the actors that I recognized. Uh, 